Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. This week, we will be talking about the Republic of Formosa. If you listened to last week's episode, you may remember me mentioning the First Sino-Japanese War, and the fact that Qing Dynasty China was getting kicked around by the Empire of Japan throughout said war. Well, today we're going to talk about that war in a little bit more detail. It all started back in the 80s, the 1880s that is. At this point in history, Korea, then officially known as Great Joseon, had been a tributary state of various Chinese empires for over 400 years. What this means was Joseon exercised full independence, but they paid large sums of money to the Chinese in order to remain in the empire's good graces. You can think of it sort of like a protection racket on a nationwide level. That was all well and good, and it had worked for almost five centuries, until July 23rd, 1882. On that lovely summer day, a group of soldiers mutinied in Seoul, which was the capital of Korea even back then, and caused quite a bit of a riot. The riot eventually reached such heights that they stormed the imperial palace, killing multiple high-ranked nobles, and even looking to execute the queen herself, though she did manage to escape with her life. Evidently, the kingdom was not able to maintain control over its own subjects, so the government reached out to the Chinese for help. As I'm sure you can guess, needing a foreign military to suppress a riot on your sovereign soil is bad in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's embarrassing, but worse than that is it's a national security risk. Foreign militaries have a way of poking around where they're not wanted, and that's exactly what happened here. Once the Qing military was in the Korean Peninsula, they didn't leave until Joseon agreed to their terms. With the signing of the aptly named China-Korea Treaty of 1882, Joseon went from a tributary to a client kingdom overnight. Now, instead of a protection racket, the Korean government was just straight up a subject of the Qing dynasty. So there you go. It's 1882, and China is in control of Korea, and that's very nice for them. But here's the problem. Japan was on the rise. The Meiji Emperor had recently implemented a vast series of reforms that brought Japan into the modern era, both politically and militarily. And when you have a big, shiny new military, you need somewhere to put it, so Japan started looking across the water at Korea. Therefore, it should come at no surprise that when a failed coup d'etat popped up in Seoul in 1884, it was the Japanese Empire that had backed it. The Chinese certainly knew the Japanese were behind it, so in order to maintain peace between the two great empires, they came to an agreement known as the Convention of Tientsin. According to Tientsin, the two empires had to notify each other when they were planning on interfering in Korean politics. It may sound strange that the Chinese would agree to such a plan, but you have to keep in mind the fact that Japan's military was brand spanking new, and the Qing imperial system, including their military, was old and beginning to show signs of weakness. So, rather than go to war with Japan, the Chinese figured it was better to just be politely diplomatic. And, as I'm sure you expect, this agreement didn't work at all. In January of 1894, a decade after the signing of Tientsin, another rebellion broke out in Joseon. Estimates vary wildly as to the number of the rebels, anywhere from 25,000 to 600,000 men, but either way it was bad enough that the Chinese needed to intervene in order to protect their puppet government. 
At this, the Japanese said, hello, you didn't tell us you were going to do that. To which the Chinese said, well, yes, we did. And therefore, war. The two empires first came to blows on July 25th, 1894, off the west coast of the Korean Peninsula. In that fight, three Japanese armored cruisers managed to sink or chase off four Chinese military vessels, bringing the scorecard of the war to 1-0 Japan. Three days later, 4,000 Japanese troops faced off with 3,800 Chinese troops in Xionan, Korea, and even though their numbers were nearly matched, the Japanese killed more than 500 men, while the Chinese killed only 88. 2-0, Japan. A few weeks later, the two armies met again, this time in Pyongyang, the capital of modern North Korea. There, 10,000 Japanese troops stood against 15,000 Chinese troops, which put the odds heavily in the Qing's favor. But the Japanese managed to capture a fort that allowed them to fire artillery over the city's walls, forcing a Chinese surrender. With this defeat, the Qing dynasty was forced to abandon Korea altogether. 3-0, Japan. The Chinese had now fallen back to the Yalu River, which is the traditional border between China and Korea, and actually still functions as the border today. Unfortunately for them, just because Japan now held the Korean Peninsula did not mean that they were done fighting. Within a day of their victory at Pyongyang, the Japanese had scored another victory at the Yalu. 4-0, Japan. A month later, in the same location, the Japanese crushed a Chinese army literally twice their size. 5-0, Japan. A month after that, the Japanese defeated a Chinese army, this time in Manchuria, which is in northeastern China itself. 6-0, Japan. Months later, in the dead of winter 1895, the Japanese defeated a Chinese army half their size, also in Manchuria. 7-0, Japan. As this was happening, the Japanese were scoring a simultaneous victory over China a bit further north. 8-0 Japan. And a couple months after that, the Japanese defeated a larger Chinese army yet again. 9-0 Japan. And you wonder why Chinese people call this the century of humiliation. So if you hadn't guessed, Japan won the first Sino-Japanese War. At the peace talks, the Qing government signed over some Manchurian territory to Japan, as well as the island of Taiwan, which was called Formosa at that time. This may sound strange given that the bulk of the fighting had occurred in Korea or northeastern China, and Taiwan is way down in the southeast, but Japan had further imperial ambitions, and Taiwan would be an extremely useful launchpad for further conquests. Although, one thing Japan forgot to consider was the fact that nobody had asked the people of Taiwan. When word reached the islanders that they had been signed over to the Japanese, many were immediately appalled. A group of leading men in the regional capital of Taipei, under the leadership of a teacher named Chu Fengjia, banded together on May 23, 1895, and formally established the Republic of Formosa. If the mainland Chinese didn't want them anymore, so be it, but they weren't going over to the Japanese if they could help it. Tang Jingsong was the imperially appointed governor general of Formosa, but even he rebelled and joined the republic as their president. Meanwhile, Chiu was dedicated as the grand commander of the militia, 
with the sole purpose of drumming up armed support for their resistance in order to stand against the Japanese when they eventually arrived on the island. His job was made pretty easy by the fact that there were still imperial troops on the island, and they were more than willing to help the Formosan movement. After all, this resistance movement was against the Japanese, not the Qing dynasty. If the islanders were somehow successful in repelling the impending Japanese occupation, they could and would rejoin the Qing Empire. Luckily for the Formosans, the Japanese invasion didn't come immediately, but I don't know how relieving this really was. It's not like the Japanese had just forgotten about them. They were tied down in a complicated international dispute over those parts of northeast China I had told you they had won in the war. Western powers were starting to get involved now and were siding with China, because frankly the Japanese ascendancy scared them a bit. And as a result, the Formosans were stuck twiddling their thumbs, waiting anxiously for the seemingly unstoppable Japanese army to come knocking when they were done doing politics. And within six days, the Japanese army came knocking. On May 29, 1895, the Japanese landed on the beach near Keelung, a city on the northern coast of the island. As the Japanese were struggling to collect themselves among the choppy waters, some 500 Chinese soldiers confronted them, but were soon driven off. Now established, the invaders camped overnight, allowing for the full force to arrive the next day. Now somewhere around 12,000 men, the conquest of the island could begin. After a few days of hard marching and camping in the Taiwanese rainforest mountains, the Japanese captured Keelung on June 3rd. This was a huge loss, given Keelung is just 18 miles from Taipei, the Republican capital city. Consequently, the government of Formosa folded pretty much immediately. Within two days, the president, foreign minister, and the members of parliament had all fled, either back to the mainland or to the south of the island. What few leaders remained on the island set up a new capital in Tainan, a southern city. So when the Japanese took Taipei in the following weeks, it wasn't as much of a blow, although it was still pretty bad. For the next few months, the Japanese Imperial Army crawled south through the island, slowed by the rough terrain and the occasional guerrilla attack. That's guerrilla as in the Spanish concept of ambush-based warfare, not guerrilla as in the big monkey. On August 27th, when the Japanese had made it to the almost perfectly halfway mark down the island, they encountered a resistance garrison manned by 500 Formosan fighters. Unfortunately for those fighters, the Japanese numbered in the tens of thousands, so when the largest battle ever fought on Taiwanese soil broke out, the Japanese slaughtered them almost to a man. By late October, the Imperial Army was outside the gates of Tainan, having carved a swath of destruction across the island to get there. Every time they encountered Chinese resistance fighters, the Japanese were victorious. So by the time they had reached Tainan, everyone in the Republican government knew that the jig was up. Even though there were about 25,000 Formosan defenders inside the city, the news that President Liu Hongfu had fled the island crushed morale. The soldiers began to grow into a state of low panic, so it was actually the city's merchants that had to spring into action. Throughout the day on October 20th, the merchants went around the city convincing thousands of soldiers to willingly disarm themselves, so that they may be spared by the Japanese when they inevitably entered the city. With that done, the invaders were subsequently invited in. 
The gates were open to the Imperial Army at 7 a.m. on October 21st, and they had completely secured the city within two hours. With the fall of their interim capital, the Republic of Formosa ceased to exist on October 21st, 1895, having lived a long life of 151 days, which is about the length of your average pregnancy, if you happen to be a domestic sheep. So, with all that said, why was the Republic of Formosa forgotten? I think, personally, it's way too easy to gloss over this entire chapter of history, and that's a big reason why. You could simply say, Japan won Taiwan from China in the First Sino-Japanese War. And many people do. The fact that Japan had solidified holding on the island within a year doesn't help either. If one were to look at a timeline of the events of the war, it would say something like, 1895, Japan defeats China, Japan takes Taiwan. The Republic of Formosa is completely left out. If you enjoyed the show this week and you want to hear more from me, I actually run a second podcast over on my Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands. On that show, I talk about the creation of every country in the world today, and I'll actually be uploading two episodes this week, one about Barbados and another about Belarus. So I hope to see you there, and if not, I hope to see you again next week.